0: I'm Grant. And I'm Dave. And this is The Commentary Cast, a podcast bringing you missing commentaries and first-hand insights from the filmmakers behind the streaming content you love.
1: In this week's episode, we talk to director Remy Weeks about his debut feature, His House. Dave, you poor bastard. For someone that, like isn't
0: the biggest fan of horror movies uh we sure do subject you to watching some of the greatest ones out there here on the commentary cast
1: hey i never said i'm not a fan of horror movies but i just have to admit that i am a gigantic chicken like let's face it you know especially when it comes to psychological real terror not cheap jump scares i'm immune to cheap jump scares all I'm hearing is you have a predisposition to poop in your pants is what, I, is what I'm taking away from this. Well, I'm uh, going to neither confirm nor deny that I, uh, you know, have to wear the brown underpants to uh, movies <laughs> on to a in,
0: To the premiere. <laughs> good thing you weren't invited to the premiere, Dave. Uh, well, why don't you tell the good people what this week's movie is all about? If they haven't already heard of it, this film is incredible, people. Get on the His House train.
1: Well, his house tells the story of a refugee couple who make a harrowing, harrowing escape from war-torn South Sudan, but they, they struggle to adjust to their new life in an English town that has an evil lurking beneath the surface. The film stars Wumi Masaku, Shope Derusu, and Doctor Who himself, Matt Smith. Hey, let's take a listen to the trailer. Congratulations you're being released as asylum seekers, not as citizens, not
2: yet. You will be sent to a home of our choosing. You must not move from this address. We are good people. Whether or not you're good people, it's not me that needs convincing.
1: I saw something in the dark.
2: You have felt it too. with the puppet. this is what they want they like to see us crazy Ah! (laughs) let them send us back how quickly you forget everything we went through to get here we are not going back there's no witch now you don't wonder what it tells me it says I should be afraid of
0: you. Wow. I think I heard the brown note in the middle of that, Dave. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, <laughs> I'm fine. I'm fine.
0: <laughs> Jeez. Uh, well, Remy Weeks is a first-time writer-director, Dave, uh, and just a swell guy, as you're about to hear, which makes me so chuffed that he was recognised at the BAFTAs this year, the BAFTAs people, Uh, for winning Outstanding Debut by a British writer-director for this very film. And and that's just some of the acclaim this has picked up, Dave. It's been universally praised by critics, was nominated for Best Actress and Best Film at this year's BAFTAs, not to mention
1: it took home a swag of prizes uh, at the British Independent Film Awards as well. The film premiered at Sundance and is currently uh, sitting at 100% on Rotten Tomatoes after 112 reviews. So uh, take that, Citizen Kane. 100% after 112 reviews. They all, all 112 of them can't be
0: wrong. And I tell you what, you can add me to the list. 113 people think that this movie is well-deserving of a thumbs up. Um, I don't know if we've had another film that's got 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. This is a new bar. That's a... It could be a very selective model for us going forward is that we only feature movies with 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's it's his house. Next week will be Paddington 2 and then I guess we're out. We've run out of movies that we can
1: do. That's it. Are we going to mic drop and get out of here and we'll retire we'll to on top? Lower our bar and maybe do Citizen Kane if we can bring Orson Welles back from you know the great beyond. Oh, my God. That uh, sounds like another horror movie pitch.
0: I feel like we should get into it, Dave. The people are here to listen to Remy Weeks. Uh, Unfortunately, they are stuck with me uh, while we sit down and have a conversation together while watching the movie. For those people who are new to the podcast, uh, Remy and myself will be talking while watching the film. uh, And if you want to listen for
1: the cue to hit play, you can watch along too, or just listen at your own leisure. Well, just to steal the words out of your mouth, Grant, let's get into it.
0: Remy Weeks, it is such a pleasure to, to have you on the show today talking about your incredible movie, His House. I'd like to pretend that this is the first time we're meeting each other, but I had the great honour of hosting your virtual Q&A for the big Netflix premiere of this movie.
2: Yep. Uh, we're now um, long-time fans. Yeah,
0: history. <laughs> and how far off are we from the big release date when the whole world will so to see this movie?
2: It's precisely seven days. Holy or moment. if you're in a major city, it might be showing you in a cinema.
0: Oh, well, that's exciting. I know. How are you feeling it? seven days out from the whole world getting to watch your baby?
2: I've, I've been in moments. I've been having um, a cycle of anxiety um, confusion um, and um, breathlessness. So um, those those are the main feelings. That would it, that sounds rare. like I mean, the director's journey. I would say. <sighs> how how, I mean, how are you feeling when 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 you were going through
0: it? I uh, I um, I think I was just so uh, exhausted from the process, and so pleased yeah. by the reaction out of Sundance that I was ready for, for people to to see the movie. Yeah. Um, but I'm a glutton for punishment. I'm like I'm like bring it on. Let's let's do. Oh, you thing. exhausted, by oh, making movies, man. Um, post production, um, music. The, we only finished the film like right before Sundance started. In fact, our editor took the hard drive from the post production facility, <laughs> got on a plane, flew to Park uh-huh. City, and hand delivered it to to Sundance. They had a deadline that was like five days before the festival started, or whatever. So then he just hung out in Park City and went skiing. It might have just been a ploy on his part to go. I'm going to get a Park City holiday out of this. If we just totally. push the, the finalizing deadline right up to the last, he didn't minute. even go to sun, Sundance. He was skiing. <laughs> it's the, the best time, time to do it, I hear. <laughs> um, well, uh, there's lots to talk about. I want to talk about your Sundance experience. I want to talk about how you got this film made. Uh, and I think the best way to do it is while we're watching this this bad boy. Uh, are you Are you ready to dive in?
2: I'm ready. Stand.
0: All right, here we go. I'm going to give everyone a second to queue up their Netflix at home and I'm going to hit play in three, two, one, we are away. Oh, my God. And, of course, the film starts out the way so many great films do, with the Netflix logo. Netflix Can you tell oh, no. everybody how Netflix <laughs> became involved in this, in this project?
2: Um, it was actually... So they bought it just before we premiered in Sundance um, at the top of the year when... 2020 seemed like it's going to be a very different year than the one we have now.
0: That's got to be a nice way to go into Sundance kind of like with the confidence of knowing you've already sold it big to the kind of largest distribution platform there is.
2: Totally. But like, I'm also such an amateur with all of this that like any, I didn't, I don't know any other way to go into a festival. I'm like, so such a newbie it was all well crazy can you to explain me.
0: to me then if you're such a newbie how you made such an accomplished film like what is your oh, background <laughs> can you tell us like how how you were prepared to to make this film like this is you're doing some pretty sophisticated mm-hmm. stuff here between globe trotting as we're seeing on screen right now uh but you know most importantly, telling a heart-wrenching story with great performances and a hell of a lot of tension. Like, that's that's not easy to do straight out of the gate as a, as a novice, as you might say.
2: I want to quickly say that um, Malika, Malika's the young girl playing Nia Gak. It was, like, I haven't spoken much. I've spoken about Chopin with me for obvious reasons. They're both so good. But, uh, like, she is an, an, an actor... And when we started shooting this film, she was so shy. She'd barely speak to me. You know, she she'd um you try and have a conversation and she will shut down. She was absolutely like this was also she was like me basically on the first day of, of the of on the set, just completely overwhelmed by everything. But by the end of the shoot, she was bossing everyone. She was, you know, she was the biggest like Especially her and Shopei, they just had this one-two together, like this secret language whenever they were performing together. It was really fun to see her come out of her shell and become the film diva she's destined to become.
0: (laughs) How many days shooting was it for her?
2: She was... um, You know, I can't quite remember. I think because obviously there's rules for any for minors on a film set, she would never have a full day, so she would not come in in infrequently throughout the shoot. Um, so I think she there's a lot of like half days with her
0: the it's some pretty challenging scenarios that you put her and all of the characters through across the whole film. Obviously the the stuff that's set um in Sudan is that is that where it's set abroad? Yes, South Sudan. Yeah, um, is some of the m- most challenging and heart-wrenching stuff because of its—it's it's real. You know, this is what people go through. It's a lot to put a little actress through, or any actors through. Did how do people prepare for stuff like that? Do you, are you talking about what's happening in the headlines? Are you doing extensive rehearsals, or are you just diving in headlong and working it out on the day? So
2: we had we had a researcher, a woman called Lucy written... Um, who helps prep for actors and also for product, the heads of departments with all the information they need to do a good job. So for the actors, get, getting details and um, and like personal stories of people, um, asylum seekers coming to the UK and for heads of department, making sure that they have enough references they need to recreate whatever they need to recreate
0: that authenticity goes right the way through um into accents was there a dialect coach that was part of the team as well
2: uh yeah there was there there was um both a dialect coach um and also um we had um uh, a South Sudanese consultant Moan who is from South Sudan but he lives in the UK he's a lecturer and he was there every day on the shoot, as well as the direct coach to keep a careful eye on everything we were doing to make sure.
0: Rumour we has it that you uh, it. did not shoot those scenes in Sudan, though.
2: No, we did not. We, um, well, it's uh, going through a civil war at the moment. And also budget budgetary reasons meant that um, we could only shoot, not only shoot, it's an amazing place, Um to shoot in Morocco, but we, we shot in Morocco in a town called called Rabat.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, that that sounds like a ingenious solution from from my point of view, and you would never know in the end result.
2: There's obviously pros and cons to shooting Morocco, but I, I really I really loved being in Morocco. It's a it's a wonderful country, and the film is amazing, and the food is amazing. Catering. On a film set, it's the best when you're shooting in Morocco. I
0: can I can only imagine. I think the listeners are are quickly learning that. Oh, so this many... shot, this oh, close-up
2: is That's... not. We have to shoot this at the end. So this is an exterior shot. But when you go to the close-up of them um, in the back of the van, and I forgot to explain. So the shot of them leaving the detention center in the back of the van. We shot the 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 back of their heads on the actual van in the detention centre exterior. But when we shoot fronts on their heads, um, we had to shoot that another time. So we had to shoot that in the studio at the end of the shoot. So oh. it looks like they're outside on the van, but we're actually in the back um, behind the set of the house in the studio. And a, the beautiful DP, Yo Williams had to recreate it to make it look like uh, Was that something you found through the
0: sort of editorial process that was happening simultaneously with the shoot or did you just always know you needed that shot and the day that you were supposed to shoot it, you ran out of time? That's exactly it.
2: I really wanted that that shot Um, and we just ran out of time on the day and the AD said, I promise when we won't pick it up when we can and we found a solution.
0: How, how you know, are Nick. you approaching the shoot days like are you have you got a shot list when you go into every day and you're striking them off as you're kind of getting the shots in the can and then keeping track of what you're missing or are you being more being responsive to what's happening and making up the shots as you go? I'm interested in, in your process
2: i would uh i when I just left film school, I thought it would be an exciting um exciting um experiment for me to make a film without. Shot this a shot list or storyboard and it was the worst experience in my life <laughs> so now i shot this and storyboard everything
0: yeah, so, yeah. I, I also subscribe to that gospel i think it's a much, makes for a yeah. much nicer shoot day if, there, if there's at least a plan that you can deviate from
1: and especially yeah, with and also- scary
0: stuff like what you're doing here creating tension it's it's all about creating that atmosphere with a, a really finely calibrated uh brush i would might say
2: yeah, it's also about communication. Um, I'm sure you know, but like communication is the probably the only job a director has is to communicate things to people all the time and to make sure everyone um, is on the same side and we're all making the same film. And like having storyboards there to help because you, this it's really hard to speak to everyone on set, and you know, there's some people who, who Aren't able to come and ask you questions, but if you have something somewhere that they can look at or um, to help them understand what we're doing, then it really does help. And would you, I
0: think, yeah. Would you hand draw them yourself, or would you get an artist involved? Or no, I
2: have an art. There's an artist I've been using since my um, Tell No One days, um, Adam Prescott. Uh, he is amazing. I think he's. I've worked with love storyboard artists in my um, short career, and I just really love. He, I really love his work, and he really. Um, when you're talking about a shot, he really just understands what you're trying to say.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's such an it's such an art, like, and there are different ways of yeah. working, right? Like, there are there are storyboard artists that are bringing a lot to the conversation with their own shot design and kind of sequence design. Uh, and then there are those guys that are there just sort of filling in your vision, but being able to do that in a way that's truly representative of what you can capture in camera. Um, totally. would, you, would you work workshop with him? Like, is he the kind of guy that you would crack the scene together or he was really just translating your vision to the page?
2: It's more translating. Like, so we, we meet, like for this, for example, we probably meet um, via... Skype or Zoom, and go through each shot. And he'd do this thing where he'd send back the shots, but then add his own stuff as well that I can take the credit for his own. Yeah, all. man, like, that's oh, a, that's I the other this. part of it <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah
0: no <laughs> like, one will know until Brown asks me about it on the <laughs> commentary cast podcast. Yeah, my secret like, will be revealed. I
2: dare
0: I'm um, stolen. <laughs> Um, while we've been talking um we sort of missed the introduction of the of 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 the house of the title and i'm interested do you want like, to go back or, No, we just to... we, there's no going back brother, we just keep going on this oh, train. No. We can go back in our minds and talk about it. because uh, i'm interested like how did you find this location? Was it a tireless search to find exactly the place you had in your mind or were you completely surprised by the reality of what these locations were when you got out on the street?
2: So we try, and we try to do everything in this film based on facts and research. And so when you're an asylum seeker and you're given accommodation, you, you rarely get sent to a major city. Rather, you're usually sent to low-income areas, low suburban suburban areas around the country. And so this was a, a community called Tilbury, which is in Essex. Which is in uh, the southeast of England, um, by the coast, and his- historically that this is where actually a lot of um, immigrants would pass through, and um, and it seemed right for the film. But I say Jacqueline, who's the production designer, and I really like this area because it seemed so un-British. There's, you know, usually when you try and make a movie you find a location that you know that those cheesy things where out the window there's a Eiffel Tower or <laughs> Big Ben to, to tell you where you are but this just doesn't tell you anything and part of that is because when you're an asylum seeker they don't tell you anything they don't tell you where you're going where you're going to be living and all you have is this kind of image of England that you've seen through I guess through media and so it was part of the story that you, just in this place, that gives you no sense of place and uh, location. So we're going into a spooky scene. This is uh, when uh, Bo hears some noises in the house. He was just listening to Soul to Soul, um, Keep on Moving, which is a black British soul act. And the music before that was um, an Aphobe. So and it was quite fun to see the kind of journey into, um, I guess, the black diaspora via the music choices. Um, but anyway, he's one of the fun things about making uh, a horror film is finding interesting ways or interesting sound design to make things spooky. When you read about um, sound and horror. Um, you you learn, there's certain things that people, whether it's through culture or whether it's through just, um, what do you call it, innate design just by, a, what do you call it, nature-nature. Um, um, there's certain sounds that we find scary. We don't like vibrating sounds, high-pitched vibrating sounds, like a woman's scream, for example, that really gets us feeling funny weird stuff we don't like atone sounds so when a tone when the tone tone would shift um it makes us feel funny and so finding sounds that have those elements to add to make you feel anxious and nervous is really really fun especially when you're trying to find stuff with with a bit of a uh, african diaspora tinge to it
0: I mean, the other thing that's majorly contributing to that kind of on-edge atmosphere is the beautiful cinematography, you know, like where we're just skirting on the edge of darkness and you're always wondering what's around the corner and what's in the shadows. And um, that can be tricky when you haven't got a lot of time and a lot of money and a big lighting team to kind of play on those edges. Like uh, when I imagine people are afraid, oh, it's too dark, we can't see this or... um, you Know how, how are you lighting these scenes so beautifully on what I assume is a tight schedule?
2: So, uh, actually, a lot of criticism from the studio was like, This film's too dark, wrong. It's like, It's a, it's a horror film, it's yeah. meant to be dark. <laughs> and also, also, I love darkness, I love film sets in dark spaces. I love, um, who's the DP? Who, um, is it Bradley?
0: You oh, always underlines um, everything, Bradford Young
2: yeah but back for yeah that's a back for the young. i love underlighting yeah. stuff I, I think it's i think dark lighting especially when you're filming people of darker skin tones is so beautiful and um and, and i'm always excited for the next time i'm treating something in the dark i would say that yo Willems, the dp um he's like he's such a professional he's worked on big budget films and small budget films and he's really really both talented and also experienced. And he um, he really knew how to, well, not so much that he knew how to, but he was really quick in when something's not working to problem solve and try something else out and try something else out. Because it's, like, without, I think... Choosing dark scenes is hard, but cho- choosing dark scenes with people in a, with a dark uh, complexion can also be hard because his job, he, in his job, he needs to make sure that the two characters are well lit, but then at the same time bring the darkness of everything down. And sometimes I can see him losing his mind. <laughs> I can see his his eye twitching because he's like, oh, how do I make everything dark and make sure that you see their faces? And it was one of the many pleasurable ways I tortured the team
0: in this film. <laughs> Yet another one of the director's many responsibilities torturing those yeah. around him. Um, I mean, it's seamless yeah. in its end result, uh, and, and I'm curious to to dig into the technical because we're never afraid to do that on this particular show. Like, but would you light up a little bit knowing that you were going to pull it down in the grade, or were you about like, no, we've got to get it right in the camera um, because then no one can mess with it in the grade?
2: Uh, no, it, it was we, there was a lot of things where like, we need to put it down in the grade. Um, I come from quite a post production background, like the short films I made as turn and it was all about post production. And so there's a lot of stuff in this film, especially for scary sequences, where it's really important for a certain part of the screen to be completely darkened. In a way that it's impossible to achieve on set. Um and so there were like parts of the scene where it wasn't completely dark, but I knew coming to the post, either via the grade or frame store, we shift the, the light the colours to make sure that it's the right levels of darkness and not not darkness.
0: Speaking of post production, uh, actually, I'm going to pause that for a second because I am so inspired by this scene that's happening on screen now. Where you think the scene is going to go one way and then it very much doesn't. You've got the sort of neighborhood, uh, local shouting at uh, at Boll, and you think it's yeah. gonna, yeah, be a, a, a taste of inhospitality inhospitability, uh, for <laughs> these foreigners. Uh, but it's just the opposite, and, and before we know it, Ball is going to the pub with these guys, and 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 really acclimatizing to life. I, I just loved that in the film. Like, how early did that concept enter the script?
2: Uh, that was in that was um, in the script from the beginning. So I am a big gay man, and I um, my references for things tend to veer towards. Um, Beyonce however whenever I'm going whenever I'm with a film crew and whenever we're going wrecking or whatnot what dudes always do especially when they're meeting for the first time is ah what team do you support or you know a variation along those lines and I can see members of the team properly bond with a stranger over this question and make pure bands of and name references that completely go over my head and i'll be sitting in the back of the car feeling like i don't get anything i'm confused and i'm missing out on this warm masculine relationship and it's a point of contention for me so you need gaming and beyonce
0: references is that what i'm hearing
2: I would love more people to ask me what's my favorite Beyoncé song or Lady Gaga. That would be nice if the if the um, Gaff, the, the gaffer and the group can ask me these questions straight it out would of be, the gate. Would be really nice. Well, this yeah. is this
0: is your chance to answer the question. Please tell us what is your favorite Beyoncé song. I mean, that's a hard question.
2: Don't you forget, we only have a, the
0: length of one feature film for this. Interview.
2: It, it's an it's an incredibly difficult question, but I really really love her new um, song, uh, her new album, The Lion King. And um, already it's one of my favourite Beyonce songs immediately. And if you're going to go into Lady Gaga, then her single, well, not single, her song with Blackpink, Sour Candy, is such a bop. I have
0: just been introduced to this Blackpink phenomenon. I, uh, I am late to the party. But I'm here to spread the gospel. For anybody that's listening to this podcast right now, check out the, the black pink phenomenon.
2: You should check it out. Oh, listen to Lady Gaga. Give, yeah. yourself, give yourself a break. Treat yourself. Listen to Lady Gaga. So Ooh, now I have a great image of it.
0: you on set directing heinous, horrific and scary stuff like what we're seeing on screen right now, uh, but listening to Lady Gaga in your headphones. Is that how this goes?
2: 100%. Like... <laughs> One hundred percent. You—that—that's the secret.
0: We were talking about Lady Gaga. I'm going to assume she wasn't uh, put in the the mix. But do you use temp music when you're editing scenes like these that are so dependent on sound design and music?
2: Yeah, we use temp music all the way through this um, show, um, uh, and none of it was accurate to the film. We really—it's hard to find temp music that hasn't um afrocentric afrocentric um uh element to it it's so it was the we used to have music but it was never fully successful
0: I, you know it's obviously a process that worked um speaking of, of of hard work this scene and a number of the scenes that you put ball through a very physically demanding and I imagine logistically complicated to shoot here we're seeing him pull a giant rope out of the wall shortly he'll be tearing the whole place down with a hammer can you give us any insights into the the practicalities of shooting some of that stuff
2: yeah he, Paul Schoep he really like we really forced him to do some really physical things and he was such a trooper he did it and he the pulling of the rope was a weird one because obviously in the scene, it looks like you're just pulling it, but you also need some tension or else it just gets wobbly and weird. And so you had to have another person on the other side of the wall pulling back. And so, so it was, it was like extra difficult for him to keep pulling the rope because th- there was a guy in the wall preventing him from doing it. It was poor. That's, that's right? tough. Yeah. <laughs> well, he, like, he went through everything.
0: Was there a Sorry. particularly challenging day, like physically at least? Like when you look back on it, like what was the scene uh, that, that really yeah. put these actors through the most?
2: Like all the tank stuff for them, like it's really, really hard. Um, like when you see it later, like him in the middle of the ocean in the chair and having to fall back and then having to reset and put new clothes on and then fall back, into, <laughs> fall back into water again and stand back up and reset and be going, Chopin, that was great.
0: But one more time. <laughs> Can you make it look more painful? Like, yeah. Uh, the, speaking of shooting in water, uh, this is going right back to the beginning of the film now, but there's that great image of all of the asylum seekers huddled together on the boat uh, traveling across the sea how how on earth did you pull that off with this budget?
2: Uh we shot in the tank in Pinewood actually on a on a boat, which was it wasn't even filled nearly as tightly as they would normally be filled. Really? There would especially when I'm um, traveling from um, Algeria to to Europe. Like these were just filled by filled by like just do is trying to make as much money as they can, so they make as much money as they can by overfilling boats, and it's insane how, and that's why they mostly drown is because they're they're too heavy for for the boat to take. And um, when you're shooting this, obviously, when you're putting lots of extras in, there's you know there's health and safety requirements, and you you have to protect people, and so you couldn't. Unless you, I don't know, utilize some crazy special effects, you couldn't go as hard as they would do in real life. So even what we're seeing is a fraction of the madness that would happen in reality. Oh, now Ria is walking through her neighborhood. A lot of these are fake walls that we put up around the neighborhood to emphasize the amazingness effect the little kid is a little nod to The Shining. This whole sequence is a bit of a nod to The Shining, of walking around the hedge maze. Oh, I love the, that. To the, the, um, the hallway of the hotel. It's just to say, Kubrick, I love you. <laughs> this, is, um, this is my uh, my payment for my love for you. Then, and then, I,
0: you know, it sounds like the silliest and smallest thing, but those walls are incredibly well bedded into the environment with the the texture work and the paint and the little details around, you know, weeds growing up them or whatever else. Like it seems like yeah. incredibly well done stuff. Sounds simple, Some but of that river stuff river not river simple. River it could river easily river. look like a flat. I would not so, guess yeah. that that was fake.
2: This was shot in a slightly of neighborhood, and so the background waste just saw behind isn't
0: actually real space, but anyway. Um hey. you're Trixie. You're a Trixie guy. Pulling, pulling fast ones on the audience left, right, and center. Hell yeah. <laughs> Can you tell us about um, these three kids that we're seeing on screen now, neighborhood kids that are coming to give uh, Rial a, a hard time?
2: So these are the three boys who do the best to bully Rial. Um, they're excellent. Um, they're incredibly awesome. British young British actors that everyone is going to see them in a new thing. Bradley, for example, with the shaved head, he's the filmmaker himself. Um, so I see them in things popping up and I'm very excited to see their career flourish.
0: We I think really these three could great... have a spin-off. They should have their own <laughs> film where they face down against the witch right after, you know, Bol and Real move <laughs> out.
2: That'd be great. Ooh, sequel talk. <laughs> um, they, um, but that was awesome. We did this a lot. Because this is a one take. We did this a lot. I think we probably did this between 15 to 20 times. And to be honest, they were all great. I was just being an evil director again. We just wanted the world and kept saying, oh, let's try it again, but this time, bam, bam, bam. And they're like, okay. And then they do it. And I'm like, that was great. But let's do it like, bam, bam, bam. And then they had to do it again. It was um, mean of me again.
0: How do you keep the? Um, how do you keep everybody on side and believing that it's going to be worth it? You know, like I, I imagine the actors are there and signed up and willing to do whatever their their captain wants them to do. But when you've got ads and producers that are going, you've got it. Something you've got something to fill the screen time, but you know it can be better. How do you keep pushing to get to the twenty take mark to get what you want?
2: Um, I mean, from the actors' perspective, I mean, um, like even though we kept doing it again and again, like, it was always fun. Like, it wasn't like those horrible technical moments where you kept having to do it again and again, because you had to hit marks and like the camera wasn't in the wrong place or focus. Like it was, it was generally like, let's do it again, but let's do it with this kind of energy. Um, and so it was always fun to to shoot. I think, I guess for the team, for the crew, it could have been probably,
0: Annoying. but, um, <laughs> but the know, proof you know, is yeah. in the pudding right like i you know i think any director yeah. has been there and seen that and experienced it and nobody knows what you're going for until it's there and nobody knows what's important until it's in the, in the edit timeline and you just got to keep going until you get what you know you need yeah as much as they'll let you anyway who was who much- what was your producer or your team like you know what who's on set with you and like who are you um, yeah, collaborating with through the, in the trenches to get this film made. Do you mean? I mean, what do you mean? Like, who are were, your hands-on producers? Like, who's who's with you? Like, getting the film made on the ground.
2: Um, so I didn't really have a hands-on producer. It was one of the weird things about this film, which I'll never do again. Is that I never really because this was made with when I was out of the, the. I wasn't part of the film industry in that sense, I, I don't, I didn't really have a producer.
0: Um, we had them. Um, like well, I'm producers. glad I asked the question because this is a far more interesting answer than I could, I could have expected.
2: We, I mean, there was line producers, there was um, Nick Shuttleworth um, who's the line producer. And then there was some execs from the, um, from new Regency. He was there. Um, but that was basically it. It was not, an ideal situation, and no one I want to do again. Oh, so the fruit, we are in the fruit rolling scene, and that's um, a real piece of fruit that we're rolling. <laughs> well, not real piece of food; it's um, a fake fruit with a little wheel, with a, with a little ball, an animatronic ball that you power through an iPhone. Hey, you roll it with the iPhone, and you, and, and it, it, it moves. <laughs> I hope <laughs> it you moves. get to keep that.
0: That's a that's a fun toy okay. to scare your friends with.
2: It's, um, what was fun about it was that it wasn't perfect as, um, <laughs> as a piece of tech. So like every now and again, we'd, we'd, we'd shoot the scene and we'd watch the fruit roll. But then we'd see the fruit suddenly veer off to the right <laughs> and, and go around the corner and twist around. And it was just do all sorts of. Slightly um, drunken yeah.
0: ghosts messing with the the protagonist. Whoa, my powers are failing.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it,
0: was, it was really funny to watch. Um, so not not so useful to keep as a piece of memorabilia. Then, do you have like little keepsakes from the film? I have. I stole the arm from the witch at the end. Hey, that's a good one. Even better to scare your friends with.
2: Um, yeah.
0: well on screen here we're seeing like one of the sweetest moments in the in the whole film but also one of the most dramatic it takes a a real turn uh i imagine this is like a linchpin scene for you as these two sort of sit down and they're trying to make the best of their new life here in the uk but then start to realize that they have very different ideas about what a new and beautiful and good life would look like oh my god to
2: with Chopin or me when they do their scenes, it's so much fun. It's the best parts of the film when they're together or with Matt Smith. Like it's something, you know, making films, being really like, oh, technical and shots and special effects and all that stuff is cool. But when you're with actors and they perform so well and they zing and they zang, it's really
0: delightful. Are you rehearsing a scene like this or are you going to just see what happens, like see the electricity when it happens on the stage?
2: So we rehearse rehearse a very short amount during the um, rehearsal period before shoot. But mostly that rehearsal for me is just to see if the dialogue is working and what needs to change. I I don't need... I mean, I give them a few notes... But not really. Like the the main notes is comes at the beginning where we try to understand the character and what the characters wants need and needs and the the tone of the characters. But once they got that, like my note, the rest of the notes is mainly just adjustments. Like let's let's do it. Um, like really small adjustments, like changing, shifting the colour of a performance from anger to regret or, um, you know, that kind of thing.
0: Would you, like, how much is the script changing when, you, when you're when you shooting it? Like, uh, not not just in one scene, but, like, across the whole film. Like, when you do a scene like this and you see what Wumi is bringing to the performance and how she's bringing it to life in, in ways unexpected. Uh, are you adapting and twisting and changing the kind of shape of the movie as you're making it?
2: Yeah, all the time. Like, I don't... I'm, I'm, I'm not married to my script. Like, for example, I, mean, I, didn't, this, I didn't mention it, but in an earlier scene, for example, when they're in the bedroom looking out the window at the old woman walking down the street, like, that was all ad from the actors. Like, what they were... The things they were coming up with was much more fun than anything I'd written. And for this scene, it was mostly what was written. I think that, like, with this scene and maybe some other scenes, when we rehearsed it, like, I changed dialogue in some later scenes, and in some scenes, Evil Women and Shope would be like, I don't really get this line or I don't really like it or I don't think this is why. And then
0: we change it together. to Something else. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to be responsive. I mean, cause ultimately these are the people that are going to have to believe it and do it and inhabit it. And if, if they don't see a way to do it, there's no way to, to make them, I guess.
2: I mean, I, I see them as the artists of their characters. Like, it's their character now, and so how they shape the character—it's it's their choices. And I—I I really want to be res- respondent to how them as artists want to portray these characters. And so, if they come to me being like, "I'm not convinced by something," I—I I, I try and listen and I adjust, unless I completely disagree, and then we—we—we we, we talk about it. But I don't think we've really—I I can't recall the moment we've disagreed about something.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about how they came to be involved in the film, both Wumi and Shope?
2: Um It was happy serendipity. We were looking for ages and we couldn't find anyone just right. Um, and then one of the producers mentioned Chope and that he was, she had just seen him on the stage the, thing the night before and that he had to come in and we had to, we found some time to get him in. And Wumi, who... Um, used to live in the UK, but now lives in LA, um, just so happened to be in, in the UK at the same time. And so we were able to get her in. And so they were able to audition together. And also really- I
0: don't want be- to cut you off, but I'm going to, just because those couple of like close-ups on their eyes there were amazing. Like the the tail end of that picnic in the lounge room scene ends in a pair of close-ups that I think are- the perfect marriage of beautiful cinematography and beautiful performance, creating a linchpin kind of moment in this this story. So hurrah to you, sir. But please tell us more <laughs> about how the actors ended up in this in the film.
2: No, oh, but that was it. When they were together, they were it was obvious that they were perfect together and it was the one easiest choice in the make, in the making of this film.
0: But how about um, was, uh, Doctor Who? How did Matt Smith end up in in the mix?
2: Someone sent him the script, and he responded to it, and he said he'd love to be in it. And so, ta-da, he's
0: in it. Is that the sort of uh, is that a particularly surreal moment for you when you think you know I'm I'm a guy making my first film. I've written this script. Matt Smith could be out doing anything that he might care to, but he wants to do this.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was yeah. I mean, the whole th- making this film was bizarre. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what was the Great. most bizarre moment? Was it the day one? Starting to shoot? Is it standing on stage at Sundance? Is it here talking to me right now?
2: It was like, well, she's in a scene with Matt Smith and and choque, and then the next day it was in the Daily Mail, like, oh, Matt Smith's starring in this this mysterious film, and it was it was it seems so like bizarre to have someone's taking a sneaky picture of Matt on set and then sending
0: yeah. it to the Daily Mail. Like that's ridiculous. You could have been bolstering your budget by taking those shots yourself and sending them in. Get some of that paparazzi. He knows me it was me. <laughs> no one's <laughs> no one knows. No one no said one way knows. or another.
2: <laughs> How dare they put in the Daily Mail? Who did that?
0: Uncredited. Uh, <laughs> you know, with everything that we have talked about, um Actually, before I get into that, and I will circle back around because what we're seeing on screen right now is some of that um, really distinctive African imagery that feels yep. fresh to this genre. I'm interested to know, like, how what you brought to the like what research you did, how important that stuff was to you, and how you ended up with some of these really crazy and incredible and scary and inspiring designs.
2: Ah, uh, I mean, we did a lot of research and. There were, and it's such a hard thing to balance between using African um inspired stuff and also just general horror stuff because at one level you you know you want to celebrate African stuff, but at the same time you don't want to turn into a cliche and and make a statement about it. And so it was kind of like more subtle suggestions. Like there were times when her mask was gonna be more African inspired, but then it just looked like those masks you see in like middle class, rich white people's houses on like bookshelves, and it was just seemed wrong. And it was—I guess it was just finding uh, a, a balance between the whole film was finding this kind of balance between inspiration and cliche.
0: Speaking of inspiration, can you talk a little bit about where the idea actually came from? Because we we talked about this at the Q&A, but it's, it's a genuinely inspired idea for a horror film where typically the biggest criticism of horror films are like, get the hell out of the house. Well, here you've got two characters that intrinsically can't, and then you've got the opportunity to explore two characters that genuinely aren't seen on screen. So, like, you've got this perfect marriage of uh, genre concept, but then something new for the genre too.
2: Yeah, I mean, when we were developing, when I was researching to think about how I would make this film, one thing I learned was... One thing I really read about was the asylum-seeking process in this country, and one of the one thing I read was that as an asylum seeker, you you may be given accommodation or house, however you have to to have it. You have to follow really draconian rules. You're you have to stay in this house. You can't get a job. You get very little money, and you're kind of forced into the space. And then, and for many asylum seekers, this can be really re-triggering for them, especially when if they'd come from really traumatic backgrounds. Like, it seems like the thing you shouldn't do to people who have been through so much turmoil in their life. And it just seemed like a really interesting way into the film, especially s- stories about haunted houses. It, it, in horror films, in haunted house films, there's always the argument, like, why don't you just leave? And in this film, it's very much about... Maybe well, for some people it's that's not an option, and for some people, they they would rather live with the ghost than have to go back out in the real world again. Um, and so that I guess that was the genesis of the story. As it is,
0: yeah, it's such a tragedy, right? Because they just can't escape the horror. Like um, they're locked in with the trauma, and it's coming with them wherever they wherever they go. Um, yeah. So, I was walking through the store in the scene, and if you have
2: an equalized, you notice that the um, the store security is watching him throughout the entire scene, which I really loved. And only every now and again does someone notice it, but that's just one for me.
0: Uh, it, those details are dotted throughout, and I think it's really, you know, masterfully done. I have to ask, though, with that family on the wall, is that a stock? image or is that you know a couple of friends of yours dressed up for the day
2: um i wish they were my friends they were um people that the um jacqueline the um production designer she cast them and we we took their pictures in the in this in the same studio we we filmed in
0: are there any other easter eggs dotted throughout like little things that you know you've put in that you hope eagle eyed viewers will spot
2: um I hope so. If I see it um they um say it. Mm-hmm. Like for that for that particular scene, like the inspir the, the lot of the script was based on research, but a lot of it was based on my feelings of growing up in this country and being other. And so for for example, him going into the soup into the shop and the security guy watching is for any black man in the uk that is a very common occurrence and i can't count the amount of times that happens to me when i'm going into a shop and so that was just a little callback on that
0: yeah man i think Um, it's it's super i kind of it's caught me off guard i think it's really powerful I, i have to admit and it's part of the 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 thing about you can't shake your own point of view and perspective. Like as a white guy, I am completely privileged to have not experienced that. So I'm not even looking for that in that scene, but I bet you somebody that's had a different set of experiences would that would be staring them right in the face.
2: Yeah. It's funny what people, um, spot and don't spot. Um, this is one of my favorite. So we're now having dinner. A lot of this film is based around people eating and drinking. So now they're having, um, Dinner in the kitchen, and um, they're having another heart-to-heart, tet to tete so to speak. And again, another moment that I love to film is watching these two mad men of actors perform and bounce with each other. Look, mate, look at them.
0: How many takes are you doing on a on a dialogue scene like this? And is are you running just one camera the whole time, or is it multiple cameras?
2: Look at them, Gwen. Aren't they
0: good? Aren't they? <laughs> they, they're so good. They're so great. Um,
2: we had... we, I think we took about, on average, maybe five or six takes. Um, we off sometimes had a second camera. In this scene, we had two cameras, I think.
0: Um, well, this scene in particular has a pretty incredible end point and we're seeing it play out before our eyes right now as the camera pulls back from what we think is the dinner table uh only to realize that it's adrift in a sea of, of surreal imagery uh, it's kind of breathtaking and i would say iconic like where tell us everything about this like how the idea came to you how you pulled it off how important it is to you if at all
2: so it was always scripted that we he's eating dinner and then we transition into a dream sequence i think in an earlier script it was done through cuts so I think we did close-ups of him eating and then with every cut, we gradually move into a new space. But then, you know, the art of simplification is like, well, how can we do it more simply? And I was one, I thought it would be better to do it in one cut, maybe just tracking back. As Tell No One, when I used to make films as Tell No One, it was always about how do we do something visual but as simply and as um almost non-core like almost banal like what's the like really boring way to do it and i just felt like why don't we just make it
0: really boring and just push it out and- failed on that front it's <laughs> i wouldn't call that boring it's beautiful, it's my crazy, friend. You know, it's I'm that creeping like sense of dread that something music. isn't right. You know, it's like it's slowly building up on you, and it's like the shivers go up the back of your neck, and you realize that nothing is what it appears to be.
2: Yeah, no bells, and, no bells and whistles, and I, I, I really wanted a sense that, especially for the actor for Chopin, that he's just eating dinner, and like it's like it's there's no like will to da moment. And those, yeah, I, I, it's, I quite enjoy that in cinema when you um, treat things not the way you should be treating things.
0: Uh, on screen oh. now, we're seeing f- footprints uh, appearing upon the floor uh, as if by magic. Oh man, and that's nasty. Um, the obviously, I, I'm going to guess, unless you invented invisibility technology for the film, that that's that's some post production yeah. magic. Uh, and, and one of the, the kind of like showy versions of it, but are there hidden moments of VFX throughout the film that we wouldn't, you mentioned before, like we're replacing things in the distance to sort of create a sense of place. Are there other little tricks that you've you've pulled on us?
2: Uh, yes. Yeah. Some of these people in the room aren't actually in the room. We, we ran out of time shooting them, so Some of them were to shoot on the blue screen. Um, so the
0: guy... Trixie the hallway, Remy at it again.
2: I know, and in fact oh no sequel of that. The guy coming out, <laughs> the guy coming through the hole here, he's not even meant to be in the scene. We um the original person we shot wasn't fitting right and so we used the guy from the dream sequence in the in the water. We took him out and we put him in, in into the shot.
0: discoveries like that like uh, how many of them did you have through the editorial process like we we want to dial up scares or we want to tighten this part of the story like what was your editorial journey like for you so I mean
2: all these scare sequences have been edited to death like I'm and I'm in the edit suite and it's the editor with me but I have a computer myself and I have Adobe After Effects I'm going through different scenes and I'm trying different shots. I'm trying different things out. I'm putting, um, I'm rotoscoping people in and out of shot and I'm seeing what's effective. Like I'm slightly obsessive about these things. Like I really want to make sure I'm getting the best of every moment, especially the scary stuff. And so they have been edited like to the extreme, like, trying things out putting people in putting people out testing it rewatching it talking about it going back trying it out again like we did like it was it was a process
0: how formal was your testing process you mentioned testing in there is that playing for family and friends or did you do actual full scale test screenings of some form we had
2: one really bad screening but we won't talk about that
0: but <laughs> we um we, I'm not sure. We, you might find that that'll come up again before we're through. I'm
2: not going to talk about that. It's still triggering. Um, it, we um, we like, we'd do stuff and then the the editor or assistant editor or someone nearby would be, be watching and talk about it and then try something else. Like a lot of these scare sequences went through so many different versions before we landed on what we have in the film. Like, like I really tried out, and it's the same with Tano. And like, if you've seen any of our films, for example, there's one where they're jumping in and out of clothes. I was on my computer during Christmas Day and Christmas Eve, rotoscoping people in and out of the scene to get the the film right. And this was pretty much the same. I was in an editor suite in Central London, rotoscoping every shot to make sure we've we've done the best that we can do. The sequence when you know, when you track out and you're in the middle of the ocean and there's the people in front, like people weren't originally going to be in the scene. That was part of me trying different things out in the edit suite, doing a lot of rotoscoping, re editing stuff to get the right tone of the moment.
0: Are there um, finished VFX shots of your own creation in the, in the completed film? Or are they more tempting that you're putting oh, in the
2: timeline? I don't know. nope we i we gave gave them to Store, and they made them look a billion times better
0: yeah i'm interested like i think that this is going to be the new thing with directors that are coming up now that can't help but have multitasked through the early phases of their career whereas formerly you know the the great directors of the current day may have come up like through directing tv or they may have come up through uh, directing theater and they've kind of like gone all in on just that directing craft up front people that are getting their start now are taking on more responsibility like a director also is doing their own sound design on their original shorts like their their first projects or their own vfx or like i did a lot of my own concept art and every director that i'm speaking to on this show has that sort of secret skill that they have up their sleeves as like an as a plus one on their directing ability. So is that yours? You used like a little bit of VFX skill is kind of your secret power.
2: Totally. And even with the sound design, like you know, I was using Adobe Audition during the editing of it too. So I was hunting sounds, I was trying them out. I was messing with different textures. We were trying them in the edit. It's hard for. I guess it's you have to get the tone right because you really. It's really important for me not to disrespect the professionals, the sound teams and the post-production. So I never, I definitely don't want to step on anyone's feet. So I, I would try things out and I discuss my ideas with them and then kind of pass the baton on and let them have fun of it. But with, our, with the shorts I used to do, like we did, because we were doing everything ourselves, like we did the sound design, we did... I used to do some of the music for my old films myself. And so it's really hard for me to separate myself from certain other aspects of the filmmaking process.
0: How many of the collaborators you worked with on this film you had worked with before?
2: Hardly any, because I was um, a first-time director on a studio film and the studio were quite... um, Anxious, not anxious. They were never anxious, but they were quite resistant to me using the people who um, haven't necessarily, you know, aren't haven't had the experience in the in the industry, which which was a little frustrating.
0: But that does seem to it be it. the default position uh, on, on with first time directors. Yeah, well, I had the same thing, and I don't and I know many, many others have have to. But next time, Remy, you'll you'll have your pick of the litter. Do you do you have a sense for what might be next? Will you stay with the horror genre, uh, or are you going to go do a musical or something?
2: Ooh, I mean, I have no idea. I do really like horror, Beyonce
0: musical. huh?
2: If she called me up, I would drop <laughs> everything. I would. Do anything Beyonce tells me to do even if it's not involved in being anything creative if she just needed someone to um to do her tax returns I'm here
0: yeah man I understand I I fully understand hey what is the Uh, what is your life looking like these days are you in development on on the next project or is it just all press interviews like this one
2: right now it's a lot of press interviews and I'm just Reading and writing and trying to work out what I want to
0: do next. On screen now, uh to turn back to the movie, of course, uh, we're seeing the place completely trashed. Um, thanks to Shopee's uh evening late night workouts and home renovations. <laughs> um g- can you tell us about like I'm assuming you didn't trash a real location, so are we fair to assume that this is a this is a set?
2: Yeah, this is um, we built this in a, in a studio. Ah, Perry. I love Perry. Um, the other um, guy who comes in with um, Matt Smith. I'd I love, I love to work with him again. He he, he was a delight. Everyone was a delight. I know that sounds cheesy, but everyone is so good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you got past everybody's like opening lines around football and you found connection before the, the job was through. That's beautiful. This, is, this story has a happy ending.
2: Yeah, totally. Um... Yeah, this was a set and I spent my whole life on the set. Like I was there before the crew came down and I was probably there after they left, sometimes. And I, I was just there with my monitor, a handheld monitor. Wherever we was filming, anything you're seeing on screen, I promise you I'm somewhere in the scene, in the corner. Oh, uh, now
0: of- you've <laughs> opened up a fun game. So, like this scene right now, you just below frame. Where where are you right now?
2: I would like I stay well. I'd stay out of their eye line. But for example, in this scene, like mm, I'd either be on the sofa or in the corner of the room, or just it could by have been the, in the
0: walls, just staring out one of those giant holes, creepily. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It would have been That's good for the characters. That's kind of what they're dealing with.
2: Totally. Like I was the inspiration for all the nightmares. <laughs>
0: That's me. How um, many how many um chances at smashing up the set did you guys have? Not
2: many, actually. We had were very limited. So we did tell Shopey, you have one time to get this right, or else you we were enough. So
0: not many equals one, or not many is please get it right on the first one because we only have two. I
2: think we had three. However, I if I remember correctly, we also did had one out of time. So and to to when you smash one, you have to replace it, and that takes like an hour or half an hour, two half an hour an hour to replace, and then you do it again. And we just run out of times. So I think we did it in two, and it was um yeah. What That's was like
0: job. what what gave you the most sleepless nights throughout the this production? Like was it the technical challenges like that? Uh, was it getting the scary scenes right? Like what was the what was the pressure point for you on this film?
2: Um, all of that, <laughs> <laughs> all of it, just all of it, all of it, all of it was like running out of time, getting the 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 spooky stuff like right, getting like all of it was scary. It was the the whole thing was a really scary thing. Grant. So
0: you're gonna do it again? Will you will you make another one of these things? If they force me. If Beyonce calls, you'll you'll be there. If Beyonce
2: (laughs) says, make another horror movie, I'll be, okay. I'll say, okay, let's
0: do it. There you go, Beyonce. The official call-out has been made. It's time for you to get into producing horror films. Remy is ready.
2: I'm ready. On your command.
0: I think we... Um, we, Please, tell us. Sorry, I cut you off.
2: uh, No, I think I was going to not say anything.
0: Just beautiful (laughs) cinematography is what's happening right now. Is this... like this is going, we, we've got these great close-ups here of, of uh, Rial and Bol right in front of the window and the light is wrapping around them beautifully and it's kind of like beautiful light, but an intense and uncomfortable scene. Um, is This is either like a lot of work to get this lit this well or it's just them standing in front of a window and you're filming it. Like so what is your reality?
2: Yo Williams, the DP, like he's a pro. Like he knows how to set up lighting in the morning and then we use that for the day. Obviously. You, you you change little things. But it's pretty much like we have the studio and then we have these big lights on the outside which are all um on the main board at which you can dim up and dim down different parts of the lighting. But like, like for this for example, so now Bo has hammered all the um handles up the windows because he's gone insane. And now he <laughs> Paul Jack Nicholson. Is, he's what are you doing? <laughs> and now he's sitting
0: he's sitting down in the chair and fucking lighting candles it's never a good place to start don't don't light candles in a haunted house man
2: what are you doing um and so yo williams and the the lighting team is using all sorts of dimmer boards and stuff and changing the lighting up outside and it was beautiful
0: yeah, well, this moving light here, right, as it's sort of simulating the sun setting. Yeah, I mean, the director in me always shudders because that stuff that's hard to get that smooth. Like, is that on a crane arm? Like, are you just pushing the light stand? Like, how are you getting that so smooth? We tried to do some of that on Iron mother, and it would always sort of shake. And I was like, the sun doesn't I'm shake,
2: laughing. guys. I'm laughing because like things shaking is always the thing on the film set, like a track or something moving. Yeah. And it's all yeah. a little shaking. You're like, oh. I think we ironed out some shakes in
0: post-production. There you go. Once again, this is a beautiful sequence, actually. Once uh, Bol has the the wisdom to light a candle and start bloody communing mm-hmm. with the, the, the witch and the demon, we're into some pretty surreal and stunning stuff. Like, I love the transition out of this sequence, and I love sort okay. of seeing the monster across the other side of the fire. Um, so, Just what um, the inside of your is- mind looks like. This is... Yep.
2: This is... <laughs> Um, in mind, this is uh, one of the very few properly CGI moments in the film, wherein. Um, so, we shot this scene quite differently, and I didn't like the way it was shot. And so we um, simplified it and Framestore put in the CGI frame and. Okay. Uh, Ground stuff that's all uh that's all fake
0: so how was um, it shot originally? I'm interested like what pieces you had and how you repurposed it into this because well, this feels all very intentional like it doesn't feel like you're jerry rigging and duct taping things together to make this scene work the way it does, so you might have done some fairly major retooling so
2: we had um a um what do you call it uh uh, a gas canister on the ground with um, a single frame for him to put his hand in, but most of it um, had to be recreated in frame store. Oh, and we had um we shot separately on the, against the blue screen um the the witch and we inserted it into this sequence through the through the frame. I tell you like this is like this is one of the hardest sequences to shoot and also to put together in post production because um getting the dialogue right and having to work out what the creature should be saying was always something we were... It was always a challenge to say the right things and how to say it. And and during post-production, we kept trying different things out. We actually had a few different voices for the creature. We tried different voice artists until we got to the right-sounding guy. It was a real was in this together it was real really challenging
0: um, is it one of those classic instances where it's like the most difficult thing to get right but when it's there it's one of the things you're most proud of like what are the the spots in the film that you're most proud of
2: yeah 100% like I really I think the scene really works well but like I there was a real time of people there was a lot of second guessing of that like and doubting and questioning whether it's gonna work but it worked in the end so
0: Man, every little detail matters, right? So right now we're seeing um, Bowl get his head turned and, you know, he wants to turn away, but he can't stop looking. But the decision about the placement of the hands and the way the fingers stay straight is part of what makes that so creepy. Um, I, yes. I love there's that.
2: Two, there's two, um, I think that was the stunt actor and also Boll's body double. We invoked um, them in and got them to be his hands. Um, and the second pair of hands was a thing I requested at the last minute. So the poor um, costume had to quickly find an, another bandage and uh, uh, what do you call it? A wedding ring to put on the body double's hand. But it worked out.
0: <laughs> we haven't talked much about costume. Like, is the costume department also handling your more specialty stuff when it comes to the ghosts coming through the walls and that sort of stuff? Or is that concept art being done by. A third party? No,
2: that was Holly Rebecca as well. And she really, um, she really put in the work. She really researched things. And we had a lot of fun um, using the clothes as a way of transitioning between where the characters are emotionally and I guess also physically going from um, their clothes from South Sudan to their clothes when they're travelling, migrating to the UK. And then the clothes they get when they're in the UK and then, when Boll buys clothes from the shopping centre. And it was beautiful. The, the costume design for the Sudan, South Sudan sequences was wonderful. Like all the Well, women we're seeing one this. of them
0: on screen now. It was such another elegant transition from, you know, what we understood to be reality to something that very much isn't. Is this a Morocco scene or is this a location that you found in the UK that was going no, to this
2: is this is Morocco and this is... This is a real school in Morocco that um Jacqueline asked if we could repaint it and uh, then repaint again as to however they would like their school to be repainted. And obviously, they are like, yeah, great. And so we um painted school. <laughs> well,
0: the school. The and, faces um, and the actors in this scene, you know, uh, in the classroom are, are all amazing. Are they locally sourced or how... Really- How do you get such great faces? Yeah,
2: kind of. I mean, they're they're all from and around Morocco. They're all East African. Um, They're all from East Africa in in terms of their heritage. And I think some of them were all in Morocco studying. Um, But there was a real search. We we had to... Because Morocco is mostly Arabic and um, um, it's North African, so it's not quite the... The, it's not. It's quite hard to find people from East Africa, and so we had to really hunt out and 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 search all around to find them. But we found them, and then um, there was um they were singing a song, purpose written for the film, um, in Dinka, which was really exciting. They 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 sang it live on set, wow. which we recorded and then kept to use for the soundtrack. Wow, um, all of those yeah, details really, are
0: so so important to the authenticity. Like just then, I couldn't help but notice, like uh, the way that Wumi was being comforted by an old friend. Like the 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 style of kind of reassurance felt so authentic. Like it didn't feel like you just pulled in an extra from the day, from you know the that wasn't authentically from that culture. That stuff, you know, all adds up.
2: But the woman, so the woman who was by um, um, Riau, I think her name was Margaret, and she was Dinka too, and she was here, I think, either working or studying in Morocco, and uh, she particularly connected with what was going on, and so she wanted, or she, out of the people we were with, she was she really put herself forward to be featured, and she's featured quite a lot in this in that sequence. She, it's the one who first greets Ria when she um, enters the new scene and she's the one that sits down next to her. And mm. she, she was excellent. All, all the all extras the were excellent, but I think she, there was a real connection with her between them, with me and her.
0: This is uh, what we're seeing on screen now is, is heartbreaking and extremely heavy stuff. Um, I, I can't imagine this was an easy shoot day. As we sort of pan to reveal the the atrocities that's happened in this classroom. Yeah, I was not that, or crazy. it was hilarious. Like you were all having a f- <laughs> like, you know, people are covered in sticky sugar syrup, and maybe it wasn't as as tragic as it feels in the film, but it's incredibly tragic in the film.
2: I mean, to be honest, in the shooting, they all just like it, it, the whole. They were there for maybe half twenty minutes, maybe a little longer. And then when you say action, and when you say cut, they all kind of sit up and it was fine. But generally, like, it was um, the sequences here wasn't my favourite.
0: No, because you're, you're touching um, a real nerve, right? Like, you're dealing with real things. Everything, you none of this is science fiction. Like, this is some people's very real reality.
2: Yeah, and also trying to work out what to shoot and what not to shoot. I, I was... It was. I was really determined to not glorify or, you know, to really, like, it was important for me just to focus on the two actors, really keep on their heads, um, not to show anything too gruesome or too violent. I, I didn't want to show any violence. Um, and so it was all mainly, mainly just um, um, kept to, like hopefully the audience's the imagination to to fill the dots
0: it's we'll a heavy it. lift too in terms of the the just how arduous and mammoth this journey must have been for these characters like for a director to go okay i've only got a minute of screen time to tell that story but people need to believe every beat along that way and imagine it in their own minds getting that yeah. down to five or six shots must have been tricky for you
2: well yeah and 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 deciding what to show, like, I, I really, it was like, how do you show this without being explicit or voyeuristic? And, yeah, that was really hard. I mean, and this was obviously a really hard thing to do as well. You have, we had so many extras on the day, and this was in Morocco. And so everyone was speaking a mixture of English and French and Arabic and Dinka. It was like, it was, it was... um Really really tough day for not just for me but for the eighties um.
0: yeah, I can imagine this is the scene that haunted me actually after the the film where just the the tragedy of this of this whole situation for everybody obviously what um bol does is inexcusable, but did he also save her from a from for a time from a really tragic outcome I mean that doesn't make it acceptable and okay but it just makes it messy uh in a way that left me thinking about the movie for for quite some time
2: yeah i think the messiness was important to show um the how a lot of this is about how we view people, immigrants and people who have come from water up to one place and how we often need to give them really black and white labels whether they're good or whether they're bad and leaving no room for nuance, and no no room, being unable to accept that the the world is messy, and it's hard to it's it's impossible to really put these labels on them. And what you know, what's better is empathy and um, understanding. Um. So yeah, I guess that that's what that was. This scene, I mean, the scenes. some of my favourite scenes in the film is Rio and the women. And, like, Wumi in the scene is ridiculously good. Mm. And it was it was hard for her, because, you know, we did this, we did quite a few takes, and to be that upset constantly is exhausting, especially in the, in the African heat. But we did it, we pulled through. Um, She's
0: great. I mean, this, this idea that you're, you're touching on talking about like representing these people as people and not concepts, not all good or all bad. They're they're complex, they're nuanced, they're human. Um, and that's the key to having genuine empathy for them and and engaging with the issue, uh, in a human way, rather than a political way, I think is, is so smart and subversive for a horror film to kind of surprise people with all of this. Um, uh, you know i 'm a uh, count count me as a as a big fan for that reason. I know that uh, when we had the chance to talk about the film altogether, you and your leading cast before the the premiere, both Chope and um woomi really singled out this twist as being that kind of like holy crap this is this is something really special moment that sent them back to the 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 script the start of the script and reading it all the way through again. Was that always there in the concept? conception of this film or is that something that that came with drafts
2: it wasn't in the so when I first pitched the story it wasn't in the very first pitch what I did know is that I really wanted to tell the story of being what it means to be the good immigrant and I wanted to find a way to force the audience to reflect on how they see these two characters and how they how that they, how, how they've decided to give them empathy because of oh because they've lost doors, daughter so they instantly get empathy and so I, I really wanted to, to force the audience to question that question whether um why it was so easy for you to give. Empathy for them when when from the beginning, but now you have to you have to doubt them and whether and how it, how it plays on I guess yourself as an audience member. so that came in the second draft, no the second draft, the second so before you draft the script, you're writing outlines and you're kind of working things out. so it's kind of like after I pitched the first outline, that was when I wrote it, that's when I shifted the the script to i guess this uh conclusion.
0: We talked a little bit earlier on about your introduction to the the project and when you got started, but I don't think we, uh, in this format, told people about how you came to be involved with the project at all about your association with the producers and working next door. But I think that's interesting about how opportunities can can come filmmakers way kind of indirectly and unexpectedly. Can you tell people about your beginnings with the project?
2: Yeah, I mean it was pure happenstance. Like, so working as Tono and still a production company, I was signed to share the office space with the two producers in uh, Central London. And so whenever I was there on a job, I'd see the producers. They talk uh, um, Martin especially. He's really into genre, and um, so we talk about genre and that's the films we love, um, and uh, you know one day I'd love to make a uh, make feature films. And he, you know, we talked for maybe, like, six months, maybe. Every, not, like, every day, but every time I we went into the office, like, once or twice a month, maybe. Um, and so one day, because they had this concept, which they would divide, they had they been working on with two writers, Felicity and Toby, and they were like, we have this project. Um, we think has potential, um, but, but it wasn't quite there. It wasn't quite there. It, it wasn't quite there. It wasn't quite working, and so they asked me, "What's my like? Do you want to submit your vision, your take, how would you, how you would do it?" And they asked me this before they had seen my writing, so it's pretty bold of them. It was. I I was still. I think I was still just in production of Tickle Monster um and so i yeah i went away and i was thinking about it and then they came back with my idea which is this and they liked
0: it i i mean i think that it's fascinating that like every you couldn't plan a career even if you wanted to no Um, you know you just have to be open and responsive and be ready when opportunity comes your way but if you were to give advice to people that were just getting started like what is your advice to the amateur filmmaker that wants to make a film like this one? one day. Well, like, I don't think
2: any of my... Anything that... Any of my selfless successes in my career so far has been due to planning. So we, I began to tell one and, and I think I talked about this earlier. Like the, the whole point of it, Luke and I was like, we have to make stuff. We have to put it on the internet. If it's bad, it's bad. If it's good, then great. People will see it. But the point is, you make something, and then you make something else, and you keep going and you keep going, and you um you get better, and one day maybe you can strike strike gold, and that was really our motto. And that's, and then we made a little show called Seaweed, and then that struck gold. That got hundreds of thousands of views almost instantly, and it started our career. We started having stuff shown in galleries, and we started doing commercials, and you can't predict that. It just it just happens. Inspiration and luck and tenacity. It it just things just happen and you can't really fully explain or predict it. But you have to give yourself the chance to allow that to happen. You have to make stuff. You have to put yourself out there. You have to take risks, and you you have to um, root for yourself. In ways that um, they can't really teach you, you just kind of have to do it, even on those sad days when you're feeling low. You have to keep keep on at it.
0: Well, speaking of making things happen and 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 really going there, the the end of the film certainly goes there. Like you pull it all out now. I love this. Like, is this this is sort of like what everybody fears is coming and then they get hit in the face with it like was this always part of the vision for the the film and what was important to you when it came to kind of sticking the landing with this stuff
2: so this is the scene where the the witch comes out the the floor originally the witch has a penis because hey. it was an anatomically correct um human um human witch but when watching it um it was too distracting people kept saying look his penis so it's one, of, one have, of those
0: Remy weeks, seamless visual effects fix ups, so penis exactly. removal,
2: which I'm sad about because like why like be so like crude about these things like
0: is yeah it, man witches it, have penises too
2: exactly but and as much as I wanted to keep it like people kept saying oh look it's penis and it's like Ugh, just like like why why do we keep uh, anyway I told you that test did.
0: screening would come up again. uh, Oh my God! Was was that on all the
2: cards? Triggered. Um, (laughs) uh, This so this is one of these editing things um, when when we closed our eyes and was back. This was not scripted. This is something we found in the edit. Um, We felt that we really wanted to make sure we understood or felt what. Uh, we are was feeling. And so this is something that just came about during editing and it worked really well. And there we go, not scripted.
0: That's one of those classic things where, like, there are a script is a script and a movie is a movie. And there are things that work great in a movie that'll never work on a page, and vice versa. It's like if you were reading the script and you were up to the climactic moment and then you described all of these flashbacks, you'd be pulled right out of the moment. But yeah. in the film, seeing it on screen, Pulls you into the moment, interestingly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, congrats um, to you, sir. It worked. Yeah, I know. It was so
2: weird. And even, I feel like I'm saying too much, but even when she says, I'm going home, like that's another part of the film. Like we didn't even use that for this last scene, but we found it in the edit. We're like, oh great, this, sound, this, would, this would be a perfect moment to put at the end of the film. And so we did.
0: I think there's um, this perception like you know and the, for the longest of times the mythology that built up around directors was that that they had this great vision and it was all there all at once and like to not have that meant you were less than but I think and this podcast is going to be all about celebrating the process in that you can't be expected to have it all worked out until you do the work and you go through the process it's it's the, each draft is only going to get better each take is maybe only going to get better and certainly each edit is only going to get better. So like you have to expect that, that, that things are being plussed along the way. So I, I, yeah, I think that's natural.
2: I don't understand what you mean, Grant. like everything was in my head.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm just talking about my own <laughs> inadequacies. This is why no, I'm here to are. learn from geniuses like you.
2: As I was saying, like, like I was saying the edit with a computer trying stuff out all the time, all of the whole sequences you see in this film, wasn't necessarily completely there on the page. They were built, um, and I, I then had to build things as know. and we built stuff with on the, on our computers frame by frame, mostly looking stuff out. And that's how I wrote the script by building in and making the film. Was all about building and developing. It was only the film only finished when a few weeks before Sundance after an a, an exhaustive editing process. This yeah, sequence. So we're at the end of this, the the movie, the last scene. This is another scene that was um, went through many many variations. Those the the actors said a lot more um, in the scene, but we just every, it was really we played around with it a lot, and eventually we stripped it out. If anyone gets finds the script somewhere, and if you do, then. Damn you to hell! You will, <laughs> you will note that there's so much more in the scene. I, than, I'm pretty sure
0: Remy was telling me that the script is haunted, and that if anybody finds the script, it's like the Ring that you you know you will be you know visited by the witch with penis, full penis to pet yeah. The witch will come for you within seven days.
2: Had to hear fast. <laughs> um, this was. Um, this, this, this there's nowhere to go
0: after which the witch coming to visit anybody that finds the script uh but it is a beautiful way to wrap up the film and these performances are incredible and i can see why he didn't need as much as what was written on the pages because so much is said in these looks matt smith is like mm-hmm. earning his reputation here yeah love matt Always what was sad. it like i mean we're we're coming to the end of the journey and there's there's um no better way to wrap this up than talking about your process of working with with superstars. What was it like working with Matt and directing, you know, somebody that's so accomplished and been doing this for so long when you're stepping up and doing it for the first time?
2: So I'll quickly say that this scene at the end of all the people was something we shot on the day. Um, and so we, we got so many extras. And we tried to pull them in, in every corner of the, of the screen and, It it looked really beautiful on set, and so I'm I'm very happy with this moment. You should be. It's it's powerful. I will say Matt is... What's really fun is that every actor is so different from one another, and Matt is someone who can add a lip to death. He's so funny. Like, he won't take my script and completely do something so much more fun and entertaining than um, I ever put on the page. And much of the humour in this film is because Matt... Just knew how to make me laugh, and he'd say something in rehearsal, and I, I love it. And so I put it into the script. He, um, yeah, him take and, it and take that him, credit. Him, him and Chopin when they're arguing in the, um, in his office, most of that was ad libbing. They're great.
0: I have one last question for you because it's the way the film wraps up. We smash cut to the title which I love, yeah. but I'm intrigued uh, about his house rather than, you know, our house or like, what was the, how did you land on that exact title?
2: Um, I I often think ownership and having a home is this weird masculine pursuit to, to, um, I guess, to say you belong here or you don't belong here or this is mine. And I liked that converse- conversation. Hinted at that in the title, and I also loved that his house could also could mean a number of things, not just talking about um, bowl, but maybe the broader conversation of of uh, ownership and also the spooky thing that lives in the house. It could be his as well. It yeah. has. I yeah. like that has multiple meanings and. But I also think the real reason is because um, I love um, Philip. Is it Philip Pullman? Yeah, his dark materials, ah. and I really like that. I really love phrases like that because there's so much more. There's so much mystery in that phrase, so much darkness, and it's like a two-word mystery. Mm. And they're quite. Uh, and i thought uh, it asks the, the question the, um, yeah whose who's house up. is it
0: yeah uh, you're like
2: oh who are they talking about let I me mean, watch this film And know um, <laughs> click I've, watching now yeah. it's that easy
0: thanks to netflix uh,
2: out october 30th
0: um you heard it people uh well i hope i hope by now everybody has already watched it because that was a wonderful and spoiler-filled conversation but uh, hopefully it made for great second viewing uh for folks to really kind of dive into the 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 beautiful craft and craftsmanship and artistry that you brought to to making this this film. So I I, I thank you for making the time, man, and sharing your your skills with us.
2: I mean, who knew you'd click on the commentary and then all they talk about is Beyonce and Lady Gaga. But I'm happy if you're happy.
0: I think there's a substantial part of the audience that's gonna be disappointed that we didn't talk more about Beyonce and Lady Gaga. And those are our people, really. Me as well. Honest. Yeah well, we I, from the beginning and keep talking. Yeah, stay tuned for our spin-off podcast that's entirely about Beyonce and Lady Gaga, but uh, until then, I just want to thank you for for coming on the show and the audience for listening along at home. Thank you, mate. This has been a blast.
2: Oh, it's been great. Uh, thanks, everyone.:
0: Well, Dave, you did it. We reached the end of the movie. I need a status update on those pants. How did we do? Good brown. Good brown. <laughs> Thanks, Remy. See, that's what's great about the commentary cast is like, not only do you get incredible insights into the craft of movie making, but you've got two hosts that are just really honest. If they crap their pants on air, they'll let you know. Did a little too much
1: honesty, maybe. <laughs>
0: Hold nothing back here. Uh, well, that is it. That is our show. Uh, thank you so much to everybody who is listening. Uh, uh, th- thanks
1: again to Remy and thanks to you, Grant, and thanks to all of our fans who are out there you know giving us some good listening numbers. Until next week, you can find me on Instagram at Grant Spittore. and
0: I'm at Is that you Dave? The show has its own Instagram at the commentary cast where you can feel free to stop by, drop us a comment, or suggest other films we should feature.
1: If you enjoyed the show, be sure to take a moment to subscribe on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you download your quality podcasts feel free to drop us a review, tell a friend, and uh, share the love. Until next time. Insert catchphrase here. Insert catchphrase here.